There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The passing of the Queen in September has encouraged us historians to shine a light on the era of her reign, the 70 years between 1952 and 2022, an extraordinary period in which the world has fundamentally changed several times over. Now, one way to look at it is through the experience of the Royal Navy, and it's quite a story. Throughout her reign, the Royal Navy didn't just change, as you might suspect. It changed beyond all recognition. In 1952, the UK was still a global and maritime superpower with a large empire. It had the second largest navy, the largest shipbuilding industry, and the largest merchant fleet in the world. The vast networks of seaborne trade routes were policed by a navy of a size and versatility that was able to engage independently in most foreseeable types of conflict. Today, the UK's superpower role is much diminished and its empire has gone. The nation's shipbuilding industry and merchant fleet are shadows of their former selves. And this change all happened in the shadows of the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Falklands War, the Cod Wars, just to name a few of the significant international maritime events of the time. So much has changed, but the Royal Navy finds itself today with the challenge of exercising its power in a way entirely unforeseen in the 1950s. To find out more, I spoke with the maritime historian Paul Brown, author of Elizabeth's Navy, 70 Years of the Post-War Royal Navy. Paul is a member of the Society for Nautical Research and the Britannia Naval Research Association. He has also been Secretary of the Naval Dockyard Society and a consultant to National Historic Ships, the UK's authority on the preservation of historic ships and boats. I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoy talking with him. Here is the deeply knowledgeable and thoroughly engaging Paul. Paul, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Thanks, Sam. It's a pleasure. Now, um, it's a, it's a fascinating topic. This I'm much more interested in it than I thought I was going to be. I thought it was just going to be seventy years of of um, depression and things going wrong and navies getting smaller. But it's there's quite actually a bit of that. Uh, 
there is quite a bit of that. Um, but it also there is there is so much fascinating history here. Um, let's start with the 1950s. Um, paint us a picture of what's going on here with um, the UK still being a global maritime superpower. Well, that's right. 1952, the start of Elizabeth's reign. Um, we were still we were the second biggest navy in the world after the United States, having been overhauled by them in the Second World War. And we still had a worldwide presence. I mean, there was the big home fleet, Mediterranean fleet. Then there were squadrons in the South Atlantic, the West Indies, the Middle East and the Far East. Britain, of course, was still the largest, had the world's largest shipbuilding industry and the world's largest merchant fleet. So part of the Navy's role was traditionally protecting those trade routes. So we had a, a big navy. We had 328 major ships, and I'll use that term for anything of frigate size or submarine size or bigger. So we had 328 ships, plus about 400 smaller ships. Now of the, of the, uh, of the 328 bigger ones, uh, 147 were in reserve. So we had a big reserve fleet, yeah, I was actually just looking at that, and I think this this tells a real tale. So this is reserve. There are four battleships, three aircraft carriers, eight cruisers, forty five destroyers, and one hundred and thirteen frigates in reserve. Well, you've got to bear in mind two things: a, a lot of those ships were quite modern in the sense they were built during the Second World War. So, although loads of ships were scrapped at the end of the Second World War. A lot of the more modern ones were kept. So big reserve fleet. Secondly, the Cold War had started. So Russia was built, NATO had been formed in 48. Uh, Russia was building up uh, its navy, particularly a large submarine fleet. It had 300 submarines either in service or building. Um, so the reserve fleet was there as a contingency for all of that. Uh, so that still left about 170 major ships in service. So it was was a pretty big fleet. Yeah. Um, my grandfather was in the Navy then, um, and he, he fought in the Cod War. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, but he had, um, I remember we um, used to sit in the dining room and there was a large oil painting of the Coronation Review um, um, over the over that we sold sold the painting now, which is a real shame. I'd like it over my my table. Um, but the Coronation Review was a big moment. It was a chance to really shout about this fleet, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean the I, I think I describe it as the last um, big imperial hurrah, because it was the last review at which we could line up lines of frigates, destroyers, aircraft carriers. There were six aircraft carriers present. There were eight cruisers. There were 28 destroyers, 38 frigates, 28 submarines, and lots of other smaller and miscellaneous ships. So when the Queen went down the lines in the Surprise, which was a converted frigate, the Royal Yacht Britannia was not yet complete. Um, there was plenty to look at. There were, there were foreign and Commonwealth warships there as well, but in predominantly... The, um, 
the ships were British warships and at the head of the lines was Vanguard, the last um, British battleship. By that time, as you mentioned, the other battleships were in reserve, but the, the, the um, flagship of the home fleet was, uh, was Vanguard and she was in service still, was to remain in service for another uh, three years before she was paid off into reserve. And I, I can remember as a small boy going down to the, very small boy, going down to the beach at Stokes Bay and being looking at the review of the fleet in 1953 for the illuminations and fireworks display in the evening. And um, I don't remember seeing it in daylight, although I probably did, but that, that view of everything in the evening with the firework display and so on left a big impression on me yeah uh, it's such a, a kind of powerful start to this period isn't it because um you know if you then jump from what from there to where we are now it's so striking um uh, the, the the loss of ships let's just talk a little bit about what was happening in the 1950s the korean war was a significant moment tell us about that yeah the korean war had started in 1950 so and lasted till 53 when North Korea, with the backing of China and Russia, invaded South Korea and the United Nations mobilised, through the United Nations resolution, a, uh, a, an allied fleet of American, British and there are about 19 different nations involved, I think, was put together. Um, and the, the role of the Navy was probably twofold with the aircraft carriers launching strike raids on the North Korean forces and, and infrastructure, and also keeping the coastal waters clear of North Korean warships and supply ships and so on. So the Navy had a big presence there during that time, um, and uh, it, it patrolled the west coast of Korea, the Royal Navy had the main role of dealing with the west coast of Korea, whereas the um, the Yanks were on the other side. And our aircraft carriers were heavily involved. HMS Ocean, for example, flew nearly eight thousand sorties. Wow! And several other aircraft carriers um, did similar things, and um, aircraft from Ocean shot down at least one MiG jet, which was the only known occasion when a piston engine aircraft had shot down a jet aircraft. Mm. HMS Belfast fired over 8,000 six-inch shells when she was bombarding. That was another aspect of it, bombardment of the shore by ships like Belfast and the other cruisers that were, were lying offshore. And, and the Korean War was seen as a kind of uh, surrogate for the, the wider Cold War because of China and Russia being involved in backing North Korea. And the Royal Navy, or the, the UK government, persuaded by the Royal Navy, no doubt, woke up to the fact that there were, we were going to need to modernise the Navy and build more ships because... There was a complete suspension after the Second World War of ship built, of building new warships. And so in 1951, 
orders were placed for six porpoise class submarines, 27 frigates of, of four different classes, 116 coastal minesweepers and over 70 inshore minesweepers because one of the big threats that was perceived was that the Soviets would extensively mine around our ports and we would need wow. a huge fleet of minesweepers. So nearly 200 wooden minesweepers were built in the 50s to deal with that. So it did give a spur, if you like, to the rebuilding of the Navy and building types of warships that were now going to be needed. For example, fast anti-submarine frigates. The Germans at the end of the Second World War had started to perfect the idea of fast submarines and they'd become more or less the norm by the early 50s. And our anti-submarine ships that were used like in the North, defending the North Atlantic convoys and so on in the Second World War were much too slow to deal with them. So we needed a whole new force of anti-submarine frigates to counter the Soviet threat from its rapidly building submarine force. Now, one way of doing that was to convert fast destroyers that had been built in the war, still quite new, into frigates. And over 30 of those were converted. But we also had to start building new fast anti-submarine frigates with the the Whitby class, for example. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Cod War, because that's radically different to what was going on in Korea. And it's, I think it's a fascinating episode. I'd like to know a bit more about it. And uh, we should say that um, the, the Cod War, it was, a, it was a term coined by a journalist in 1958, I think. Um, so it's a bit tongue in cheek. It wasn't a real war or, or it was more of a kind of a, a dispute. Tell us about the Cod War. Well, it was um, it was it was, as you say, 1958, the first of three Cod Wars. At that time, we, we had massive trawler fleets in places like Hull and Grimsby. And one of their, their prime fishing areas was off the coast of Iceland. Um, and Iceland declared um, a big extension to its territorial waters. Yeah, just kind of, was that out of the blue? It's an extraordinary thing. It's like suddenly they decided that they had more water than everyone yeah, else thought they had. Yeah, it was. Um, and they... We, of course, resisted that, and they started ramming our trawlers um, with their smaller their gunboats and patrol vessels. They only had a small navy, but they caused havoc to our trawlers, and so the navy had to send in frigates, um, but some of the large ocean minesweepers that we had then, and so on, to help protect those trawlers. And... And, and as happened with the next two Cold War, Cod Wars, because the same happened in the early 70s, there were two more Cod Wars, um, these vessels, our frigates were quite often involved in collisions with the Icelandic gunboats as they warded them off. Um, so, but the trouble was Iceland held a sort of an ace hand because there was a NATO base for America in particular, and they yeah. threatened to withdraw from NATO if we didn't recognise their their uh, new territorial limits. So progressively, between 1958 and, um, I don't know, when it was about 1976, there was more and more recognition and wider and wider territorial waters for Iceland, which, of course, ended up with the the abolition almost of our deep sea trawler fleet because 
it just wasn't economic for them. They'd lost their prime prime fishing grounds. Yeah, it's I mean it's a seriously astute move by the um by the Icelanders, isn't it? It's 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 quite impressive. I'd like to know who was behind that, who suddenly clocked that um if if uh, if they allow the Americans to land their bombers or whatever was going on in Iceland, then um that then they could take take more of more of the world's seas for themselves. Nineteen uh, sixties um nineteen sixties things change. We've got a, a a major economic downturn, and this seems to be the the moment that the uh, the, the wheels start coming off for the navy. Yeah, I mean. In the in the early sixties and most of the sixties, we we still maintained that worldwide presence of the navy, um, but the economic situation and the decline, of course, of the empire. Many of those areas were gaining independence. Meant that um, the navy was going to have to change its role radically, and um, in the late sixties, the the Labour government decided to withdraw from east of Suez and also to run down the aircraft carrier fleet, which was primarily serving east of Suez. So, and that all took effect by about 1971. We also lost our presence in the South Atlantic. We carried on, apart from the famous ice patrol ship in the Falklands area, uh, we, we had to have some presence in the Caribbean, because of our possessions there. And also, we kept a pos- some presence in the Gulf, the um, Arabian Gulf and the Middle East, because basically that was the one trade route we had to protect uh, because of oil. So the Far East Fleet, which had been become the biggest fleet in the Navy, had, su- had supplanted the Mediterranean Navy, and that was run down completely. I mean, there had been a big build-up of the Far East Fleet in the early 60s because of the Indonesian confrontation. This was when uh, the, the Federation of Malaya gained independence and incorporated one or two other states like North Borneo and Sarawak to become Malaysia. And President Sukarno in Indonesia didn't like the idea of this, particularly North Borneo, which he wanted to incorporate into uh, Indonesia. And so there was a lot of infiltration of Indonesians into North Borneo in particular. So for two or three years, there was a huge build-up of the Far East fleet to deal with that situation and suppress all of that Indonesian activity. So by the end of the 60s, all of that was, was, was long past, um, and the aircraft carriers were going to be a thing of the past, as was the, the Far East fleet. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Yeah. Um, the, the advent of Polaris is an interesting um, stage in this, isn't it? So um, early 60s, when you suddenly have um, nuclear-armed uh, submarine-launched ballistic missiles. Tell us about how that affected things. Well, the RAF's um, V-bomber force was ageing and had to be replaced. And one or two um, suggested replacements failed to materialise. And, of course, the Americans had already got, by this time, ballistic missile armed with nuclear warhead submarines. The, the, the latest development was Polaris, as you say, missiles. And this was through agree, agreement, I think originally between Macmillan and Kennedy, it was agreed that British, uh, the British could acquire the um, Polaris missiles. We would make the war, warheads and the submarines. Mm-hmm. The Americans would supply the missiles themselves. The big advantage of the these submarines was that they could not be easily detected. And therefore, it, they could be a deterrent because any strike, any nuclear strike, we could retaliate because it couldn't strike at our submarines, ballistic missile submarines. Whereas a, a V-bomber base could be attacked, um, the, the whole clue, the whole key to these ballistic missile submarines, the Polaris submarines, was that the, Ameri- the Russians should never know where they are when they're on patrol. So four of those resolution class Polaris submarines were built and it was, in- it was intended and indeed achieved that one of them at least would always be on deterrent patrol um, somewhere unknown, um, but within range of at that time, of course, all the key cities in Russia and the Soviet Union. Um, and to this day, that that independent deterrent, nuclear deterrent role has is still held by the Navy, of course, with Trident submarines. And their boast is that they have never had to suspend a patrol. That, that patrol has been continuous since 1968, when the first Polaris submarine went on on patrol yeah fascinating stuff so you've got all of this going on um around around the coast of russia around the north sea i suppose but then 1980s we have the the problem of 
um, of the Falklands. Tell us in brief about what was going on there. Yeah, well, the Falklands War was the, the in, in the whole of this 70 years, although the Cold War was the dominant force affecting our defence forces, the Falklands was the biggest actual conflict. And of course, the government, the military junta of Argentina had orchestrated a, an invasion of the Falkland Islands. There'd been claims over its sovereignty by them for many years, and nobody ever really thought it would come to, the, to this, although the Navy did have plans for such a contingency. And um, the Navy saw this as their big moment, to, to uh, particularly as a big defence review had been particularly savage with its cuts to the Royal Navy in 1981. Here was a chance in 1982 to uh, salvage something in terms of their reputation and their, and their size and their number of ships. And so they had, the then uh, First Sea Lord told Margaret Thatcher, yes, we could mount a task force which could reclaim the Falklands, even though they were 8,000 miles away without any bases anywhere near them. So there were huge logistics issues and so on in supplying that task force, which went down and, of course, as we know, um, successfully retook the islands through amphibious landings. Uh, the biggest uh, threat it had to face was the Argentine Air Force and the, the, the Navy's, Argentine Navy's fleet air arm with something like 200 strike aircraft up against our 24 sea harriers so that that was a real contest and sadly as we know six um, British ships were were lost in the conflict many lives were lost but it did demonstrate um, a, it, out of it came a lot of lessons really because it was the first time nuclear submarines had used been used in combat guided missiles uh, for the first time had been used in combat and so on so a lot of the new weaponry that had developed since World War II was being tested out. So many lessons came out about what needed to be done to our ships, our aircraft, and so on to face the kind of threats that, that they would they would meet from modern weapon systems. Yeah, it's a fascinating period, and I'd urge everyone to listen to your previous podcast where we, we talked about, uh, about that in more detail. Um, 1990s. So key thing here is the end of the Soviet Union, a very important moment and a period. How did that affect the Navy? Well, what was declared was the so-called peace dividend. You know, we wouldn't need all these ships, all these submarines, all these sailors, because Russia, well, Soviet Union, soon to become Russia only, really, um, was in meltdown. Many of its ships were being laid up. They had big economic problems. They couldn't repair, maintain their ships. So having said that, uh, it, whilst it was said to be the end of the Cold War, that didn't mean the Russians stopped deploying their submarines with nuclear missiles, just like we had Polaris um, still at that time. But it did mean the government was able to take the opportunity, if you like, to run down the um, size of the fleet. I mean, the the spending on defence had been 11% of GDP in 1952. It ran down to, after the peace dividend, ran down to 2.5%. 
during the during the latter part of the Cold War, it had been around five to seven percent. So we were halving halving our spend expenditure on defence. A lot, quite quite a few nuclear submarines and the last of the conventional diesel submarines were paid off, as were uh, quite a lot of, of frigates. So it didn't all happen overnight because it's it's been a history of continuous salami slicing. But certainly in the early 90s, we saw some of the biggest reductions. Yeah. Uh, and the 2000s is interesting with, again, different challenges, primarily Iraq and Afghanistan. Tell us a little about how the Navy um, fitted into that, that complicated jigsaw. Again, in the 2000s, there were big defence cuts. I, I remember just around the, the time of the big fleet review at Spithead in 2005, uh, quite a few ships were being paid off. There was the so-called war on terror going on in the in the Middle East after the second in the so-called second Gulf War and then the Afghanistan campaign, where we threw again amphibious landings. We landed troops in Helmand Province, and Royal Marines were amongst those part of the Navy, of course, who had to take that ground and keep it. And in fact, the last Royal Marines didn't leave Afghanistan until 2014. So it was a very protracted campaign. The Navy had a, ro had a role as well. Uh, our submarines were launching Tomahawk cruise missiles at various land targets, as they had done in some of the other more recent, recent conflicts. So really, I think that decade was probably dominated by the Middle East invasion of Iraq, and then the um, the attempt to beat the Taliban in um, Afghanistan um, and remove the the threat through the the so-called war on terror, which we know didn't end well. The Taliban yeah. end, still ended up regaining control of Afghanistan. And then, um, you know, thinking about what's happening in the present day and responding to the growing threat of China, how is the Royal Navy? trying to to deal with that well things have moved on slightly even from what i've got in my in my book it's one of the troubles of writing about current events but basically the navy decided a couple of years ago that it would re-establish that presence in the indo-pacific region and they sent two new patrol ships out there now that wasn't really going to put the frighteners on the Chinese too much, I don't think. And those they're permanently forward deployed there with a roving brief, but over a massive area of the Indo-Pacific. And then last year, we had the first task force deployment to the Far East. All of this is to counter the perceived threat from China, which has been building up its armed forces dramatically, as of course as Russia since 2008. And now we are beginning to see even more of a coalition between Russia and China emerging, as we know. But anyway, that large task force, a seven-month deployment led by HMS Queen Elizabeth, one of the two aircraft carriers, went uh, with a whole group of escorts and submarines uh, out as far as the South China Sea and back as a demonstration, if you like, of our capability to still mount that kind of thing. So all of this, if the latest update on that, of course, is that we intend to base one of our astute class nuclear submarines in Australia, 
uh, and share duties there with American submarines. Also with the French, because the French aircraft carrier Charles de Gaulle and our two aircraft carriers will share a, on rotation basis the mounting of, ta again, task force deployments to the Far East. So whilst we won't have quite anything like the same permanent presence we used to have, we are developing the capability and more presence in the Far East. Yeah, let's end by just talking about the um, autonomous mine hunting and mine sweeping launches which are being built now, because that takes us back to what you were saying in the 1950s with all the money being spent on mine sweeping. Um, I think this is a fascinating development. And, and the, tell us about the Royal Navy's interest in aut autonomous craft. Well, it's part of a more um, general trend, if you like, towards autonomous systems. Mine hunters have had a lot of the publicity. So instead of having um, expensive mine hunters like the current uh, Brecon and Sandown classes, we will have small launches which are autonomous, unmanned, to deal with mines. And this is, this is happening in so many areas now that unmanned submersibles, for example, uh, are coming into play. And we've already got this mine hunting capability being extended now into the Middle East, where we've always always had mine hunters. One of the disadvantages is the mine hunters, the old mine hunters, could carry out other roles as patrol vessels, for example. So when they're gone, we lose yet more surface units in the navy, which can take on a multiplicity of roles. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating to see how it's going to develop, um, if a little concerning, because I'm not entirely sure we've got enough vessels to protect our aircraft carriers or protect our nuclear subs. Well, that's part of the problem. In one sense, we have a balanced fleet, so you could say that's a positive, because we maintain aircraft carriers, nuclear submarines, strategic deterrent, even an still an amphibious warfare force. But that then means it's maybe balanced, but it's also spread very thinly. And um, we haven't got enough nuclear submarines and escorts, i.e. destroyers and frigates, to support and defend our aircraft carriers. We also haven't got enough aircraft for the aircraft carriers. At any one time, only one of the two has F-35B Lightning jets on it. And even there, not enough. They should be, out, they should be carrying something like 24 when the Queen Elizabeth deployed to the Far East, she only had eight uh, plus ten um, American ones. So these, the, the, whilst the investment in the two aircraft carriers has been impressive, um, a lot of area, a lot of aspects of the Navy that are needed to support it and to complement that role aren't really present. Yeah, well, um, really, really interesting topic. Paul, thank you very much indeed for sharing it with us today. Thanks very much, sir. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, if you're interested in such contemporary issues that have been highlighted here, then please do check out a podcast I recorded in September 2021, in which I was invited to Portsmouth to interview the first Sea Lord, who speaks in great detail about the challenges that the Navy currently faces. A subsequent episode explored the question, is Britain still a global power? Which is also well worth listening to. 
Please also check out our fabulous YouTube channels, a host of videos, I should probably say a fleet or fleets of videos, exploring our maritime past. We're currently working on animating one of those brilliant cutaway drawings of a ship that shows all the goings on inside. You all know what I mean, you've seen them in countless maritime history books and online, but this is not a modern phenomenon. In fact, we've started with a very famous image from the late 17th century of a first-rate warship. It's going to be fantastic. So that'll be coming soon on the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube channel, but there's tons of other material for you to spend several happy hours watching. In fact, it's all so good that recently the monthly viewing figures for our YouTube channel have exceeded our listening figures for the podcast. This podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation, and please do check out what both of those brilliant institutions are doing. In particular, please check out the Lloyd's Register Foundation's latest project, Maritime Innovation in Miniature, in which they're filming the world's best ship models using the latest camera technology. It's truly fantastic. To find it, just Google Maritime Innovation in Miniature. That's Maritime Innovation in Miniature. And please join the Society for Nautical Research. You can find them at snr.org.uk. It's a wonderful way to meet people and to find out about the maritime time pass from the very best scholars in the field. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.